Today is the, well, it's kind of the start to a new series called Tis the Season, although we were supposed to start it last week. So today is part two, but I'm going to kind of bring in some stuff from part one, and I promise that doesn't make the sermon twice as long, you know. Um, It's kind of maybe part one and a half, maybe. We're going to kick off uh, with the understanding of what this season is all about. And if I were to ask everyone in the room what the season represents or what's the season for, you'd probably give me lots of different answers. It's for family, it's for gifts, it's for, uh, you know, you give me all the Jesus responses. It's for um, church. It's for faith. It's for all these things. Some people just, it's the season of joy. It's the season of merriment. You know, it's the season of giving, uh, which is all of those answers would actually uh, be true. But one of the things that we kind of looked at for this series was we wanted to talk about the fact that it's the season of relationships, right? It's the season of relationships. For the two billion people in over 160 countries that celebrate Christmas, uh, they all celebrate it very differently, but they all have a very common theme. For the 90% of Americans that celebrate Christmas, Christmas, whether they're Christians or not, who all celebrate it differently, there is a common theme, and that is that Christmas, this season, this holiday, brings people together. It's all about relationships. It's all about the way in which we relate uh, to one another, whether it's gift giving or gathering or whatever the case is. It's all about relationships. So it doesn't matter if you're getting together with your family, you're going to have a family meal. Um, we know that some of you guys are going to have that hopefully sometime between now and Christmas, or you're going to get together with friends. Maybe you're not traveling this year and maybe people are coming to you or, or you're just going to be with friends this year. So you have a friends gathering, a friends Christmas, which lots of people do that. It doesn't matter how you gather. Some families just gather so they can get those awkward Christmas photos, you know, that no one enjoys, you know, and especially the kids, you know. It doesn't matter how you gather, we all gather because the season, tis the season, it's all about relationships. And one of the things we wanted to talk about in this series was that the Christmas story, the Christmas story itself is all about relationships, all right? So I'm going to look at just the, this week we're going to look at the Luke passage, the, the Luke's account, if you will, of the birth of Christ. You can look in Luke 2. It says, at the time the Roman emperor Augustus decreed a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. It says, this was the first census taken when Quirinius was uh, governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And it's important because Joseph was a descendant of King David, and he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. So he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged and who is now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging for them. It says, the night was, uh, that night there were shepherds staying in a field nearby and they were guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. It says they were terrified, but the angel assured them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born to you today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You'll find him as a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly the angel then was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heavens, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to whom God is pleased. And if all you remember is Linus, peace on earth and goodwill to men, right? 
That's a beautiful account. I love the account. Luke, Luke actually gives us this account by doing all sorts of interviews. So we know for, for a fact that he interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, to get a lot of what this has transpired. But he also probably interviewed uh, shepherds at that time and family members that kind of shared the story of what happened there on the hillside and all that was taking place. It's a beautiful pulling together of lots of information to give us the narrative of the nativity. And one of the things that we, we wanted to make sure you knew, this is where we were going to start last week, was that when it comes to relationships, which is what this really Christmas story is all about, we really want to talk about the, the kind of the reality of it, that it really, it really did happen. This was a very real day in history that this happened. And it was a, in a real city in the world. And for us, a real Savior was born, right, that would bring real hope for all mankind, for you and for me. And if we don't start, if we don't start with the fact that this was a personal thing, that this this really happened and this really happened for you and for me, then it's very difficult when we start talking over the next couple of weeks about why it happened and the significance of what happened really gets lost if it's just a fairy tale. You know, it gets lost if it's just a really neat story like we all have for all the other things that happen around Christmas time. It's, it gets lost if it doesn't mean something to you, if it's, you don't understand that this was all a real story, a real day in history, a real place in the world that this happened. There's a real Savior born that brings real hope to us. And the question we're asking today, because it is so personal, is when, why did Jesus do it? Why was Jesus born? What was the purpose behind that? Now, there's some context, even in the way that Luke describes it, that does give us some meaning, some purpose for why he was born, in terms of the, even just the word Messiah. They would have, could go back to Old Testament and get some context to that. But for the most part, usually when you talk about the purpose of something or the meaning of something, it's very hard to get that from just going back to sort of the origin or going back to sort of the narrative, if you will, of that nativity, of that, of that scene. You know, the, the, sometimes we do that and we focus on elements of it. So here's some artistic renderings. Like sometimes we focus on the humility by which he was born, in terms of, you know, there was no room in the inn. There was no place for them. They were rejected, you know, this, this young couple and their first kid. They have to go to this cave, this hollowed-out area for the animals. Very unsanitary, ladies, am I right? So it's not, it's not the place you want to give birth, you know. Um, they, sometimes we focus on that element of it. Sometimes, even in artistic rendering, we focus on who came, like what the significance of the event was. And so we have the shepherds and the sheep coming and bowing and, 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 and being told. We have the, the wise men, however many there were, you know, bringing gifts. And they've traveled so far. At some point in history, they talk about a drummer boy, which is ridiculous, right? Because, listen, take a drum next time to the maternity ward. You're going to get throat punched for sure. You know, like, I don't, ha- I don't even know how that happened, right? But, the, but we all talk, the, it, it, the reason it happened is because we wanted to focus on the significance of the event. So that's sometimes how, why it's talked about and how we try to bring purpose and, and meaning from the story. But the reality is, is that that's, that's not a good way to do it in terms of just the narrative. No one can get the purpose of why they exist by going back and telling the story of how they were born right? You can't go back and have a picture of how you were born and have any purpose and meaning, right? All the blood and the screaming and the chaos, the dad's about to pass out, right? Like you can't, you really can't get that from just the story of how you were born or just the story of how Jesus was born. 
But I do love John. John is one of the disciples of Jesus. And I love the way John, because John writes his account. He writes his gospel. He didn't know he was writing it, but he writes his account of the life of Jesus, and he talks about the birth of Jesus in a way that's a little retrospective. It's a little, he's older when he writes it, and so he writes it with some clarity, and and he chooses to write about the coming of God, the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, through the lens, through the filter of the purpose of why he was born. And so here's what John, he says in John 1. I love the way John describes this. He says, in the beginning was the word. I want you to know that, that that is a Greek word that John's using, logos. And it says the word was with God and the word was God. And the reason that's important for him to know he's using that word logos is because it's actually a Greek phrase. And the majority of Greeks in that time frame, they all believed in something greater than themselves. That's why Greek mythology was such a huge part of their history. They all believed there was greater meaning, a divine meaning that held life together. So they would use that word, this logos word, in, in terms of even just their reasoning. And so John chooses to use that word to help them understand that, hey, there was, at the beginning, there was meaning. There was a divine reason that held things together, and it was God, and it was with God, and it was God. Then he goes on to say specifically about the birth of Jesus. He says, in him was life, and his life, or that life, was the light of all mankind. Like, there was so much significance to the coming of Jesus to the coming of the Savior. Now he does get in his kind of kind of retrospective view. He he does get a little poetic. Okay, he does get a little poetic in his words. He talks about um, God was like an artist, you know, that went into the creation, went into the painting, and the painting didn't recognize who the artist was. So he gives some some sort of poetic imagery for us to see. And then after that, he repeats it with the reality of what really happened. He said, in verse 11, he says that he came, Jesus came to, to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's what happened. But then he said this, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. That there was this logos, this reason that became that became, that was God, that that came with light and life, even though people rejected him, even though he came to his own, for those that did, they received this gift, they received this opportunity, this right to become the children of God. And then he says this in, in verse 14, he says it again, Logos, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That was so significant for him to help bridge the gap between just a a philosophical view of of things meaning more than they should. He says, no, the, the meaning of life that holds life together, that brings light to mankind, he made, he became flesh and made his home, dwelt among us. I love the way the message paraphrase says in Romans, he said, you know, God sent Jesus into the disordered chaos of humanity. That's what he entered into. And so he says, he, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John says, we have seen his glory. This is a verse of testimony. This is a verse of it saying, we have witnessed him. We, me, and the other disciples and the people who are, we have witnessed 
this gift. We've witnessed this word that became flesh. He's the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And then he gives a characteristic that I want to focus on for the next couple weeks, where he says he was full of grace and truth. I want you to read those two words out loud together. He came from the Father full of what? Grace Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Now the big, again, going back to the beginning or going back to that verse 11, the purpose, the reason, right? The reason that he came. Not only was it a real thing that happened, but it was personal and it was for a purpose of relationship. Jesus was born to restore our broken relationship with God. That's why he came. And I love the fact that John writes about it, not just from the story of how it happened, but just why it happened. Why it happened was so necessary. Why it happened was so important. He came to restore. It was all about relationship, to restore our broken relationship with God. And not only does he state the reason and the purpose was to, was to do that, because again, if you look back at history uh, from the time of Genesis, from Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, you know, God promised Jesus. God promised a Savior. God promised a way even as early as Adam and Eve and the curse and all that they were going through in Genesis 3.15, he says, I'm going to provide a way. And then through all the Old Testament stories and all the prophets that would point to and point to and point to the way, point to the Savior, then Jesus comes to fulfill that, to let us have an opportunity to, re- to restore that relationship with God and become children of God. But then John also tells us how he restored it how he restored the relationship, and that was through grace and truth. But he, listen, he didn't just come to die, because if he just came to die, he could have been sacrificed as a baby. There were lots of babies being sacrificed in that day and time. He could have been sacrificed as a baby for our sins, and we still would have gotten the benefit, but that's not the only reason he came. Part of the restoration, part of, part of us be believing in him and believing on his name was because he lived this sinless life. Because as John said, we witnessed his glory, this word that became flesh, and he was full of grace and truth. And that's how the restoration happened. Now, it's hard for us because in our own finite way, we, we, have the, we are limited in this. We, at best, we, you and I, we try to find a balance of grace and truth right? Because we all have a leaning one way or the other. Some of us are really grace-driven people. You know, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We don't take others too seriously. We kind of let things roll with the punches, and it's not that nothing's going to be so crazy and crisis-driven. We're already kind of grace-driven. But then there's some of us that are all truth-driven, right? We're all, we're all rule-following, you know, truth-arguing, seldom-wrong people, Right? That's truth-driven. And the best that we can do in our own finite strength is to try to find a balance to where we're not too grace-driven or too truth-driven. We just try to find a balance. The problem is, is even in that balance, we're going to struggle with broken relationships and we're going to struggle with our broken relationship with God. That it's the fact that he was all grace and it's the fact that he was all truth that made the difference that he was all grace and all truth. Now, we're going to talk more about truth next week. And truth um, isn't always been historically in terms of Christianity. We've kind of done okay with the truth. We've done pretty well in terms of holding to absolute truth and proclaiming absolute truth and letting the truth do what it was meant 
to do. But also historically with Christianity, we have all struggled with grace. We have all struggled to understand, to receive, to give, to express grace in the way that it was all grace with Jesus, all grace that restored our relationship with him. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't kind of matter, but here's the, the simplest way I can, I can express that is that grace really is something that we all want to receive, and grace is also something that we all struggle to give, okay? So just follow me just for a minute. I know you can, I know you can. you're all very smart people, but grace is just one of those things that we all want, because it doesn't matter what your struggle is, what your own personal issue is, there's something about you that you know is not right, that you know is broken. All right, you, may, you show everybody to the world all the things that are together, but you don't show people what's broken. And you know that when your brokenness is exposed, when, when your brokenness shows up, when it's kind of rubbed shoulders and, and, and it interfaces with people, what you really want from people is grace for the areas that you're broken. The problem is, is that when you interact with other people and your relationships with family and friends and other people, when you interact with people and they rub you the wrong way and their brokenness affects you and their brokenness begins to, to have a problem with you, you have a hard time extending grace. You struggle to extend the same grace that you so deeply desire. Why is that? Well, we just know it's true. Again, that's, that's, that's the element that we want to understand about the difference between the grace that we, we struggle with versus the all grace that Jesus was. Is that this is the kind of grace that we, we, really, we really want from people, but we have a hard time expressing it. And the reason that it's important, the reason that I wanted to bring it up for Christmas was because no matter what this season represents to you, no matter whether it's the season of joy and family gatherings and friends and vacations and, and uh, you know, dinners and all that kind of thing and Christmas parties and work parties and life group gatherings, no matter how that looks, you are going to be swamped in relationships over the next several weeks. And here's what happens at Christmas is that all the good relationships are there, but it shines a spotlight on all the broken and struggling parts of the relationships you have with people. That's what Christmas does, right? Just shines a spotlight on it. There's going to be things that you are so excited about, you had them in your calendar forever, and there's going to be things that you're going to or you've gone to that you curse under your breath on the way there, and you curse out loud on the way home. Why? Because brokenness exists. Because in relationships, the struggle and the brokenness just happen to be there. And it can be surface level stuff. You know, it can be the stuff that at work, you know, at work you've got bosses and coworkers that you don't jive with and you got them for secret Santa and you, you want to give them a gift, but no one, legally it's not allowed, you know. So, you know, there's, we know that those, those feelings are there, you know, there's friends and family that you avoid most of the year, you know, you just don't talk to them that often, you don't see anything the same way and you know you're going to have to get together with them and be in this room with them for a period of time. And sometimes it's more serious, more serious in terms of the brokenness and the pain. Sometimes it's parents and in-laws and step-parents that you're going to be connecting with and, 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 and just, just being with them reminds you of the pain and the struggle that you have. In the, in, your, in the struggle and tension in your relationship, just being them br brings up all the memories of conditional love and conditional support and that everything you did really never was enough 
for them. And that they're never going to truly ever fully accept you. Sometimes it's in current relationships between you and a spouse, between you and your kids, that there's tension there and there's breaks there. And this, again, this season just shines a spotlight on it and just sees all the cracks that are there between you and older kids and teenagers and, 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 and spouses. And sometimes it's your ex who's moving on, but you're not moving on. And sometimes it's a sibling who's winning at life right now, and you're just not winning at life right now. It doesn't matter what the context. We're all going to have these relationships, and we're all going to experience each other's brokenness at some point in the next few weeks. And what's going to happen is your temptation is just like it was last year, which is you're going to do all that you can to grit your teeth and put the smile on and shut the filter of your mouth down and try to get through your vacation and try to get through your Christmas party and try to get through this gathering, this dinner, and just not say anything and not do anything that you'll regret. And you just want to get past it so you can go another year of not of just ignoring and avoiding and here, here's my message today is that honestly, that is not the grace that came that Christmas morning that was lived in a sinless life that was given to us to restore our brokenness with him. That's not what that grace is. That grace, again, just kind of best described, is an undeserved, unearned favor. That's the grace that we've been given. It's unmerited, it's undeserved, meaning that there's no possible way in any future or past state that you would actually deserve it. And some of the areas of your life, the problem with us with grace is that some of the areas of our life that we're all together, we kind of feel like we're okay and deserve grace. And we ignore all the broken, horrible, awful parts that we hide from everyone else, that if we're really honest about it, we know that we do not deserve it at all. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, and it doesn't matter how many chances you're given and you can, you're, you're afforded. It doesn't matter how many opportunities you, you might see in your future to be able to be, choose the right decision and be the right person you're supposed to be. You simply cannot earn it. We have a value of grace at our church, and the way we state it is that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more than he already loves you. And there's nothing that you've done that can make him love you any less than he already loves you. That's what this unmerited, undeserved, unearned, unearnable grace really is. And it's what we see in the life of Jesus. It's what they constantly saw in the life of Jesus, and they struggled with it even then. He, they show up on the shore of, a, of, the, of, the, of the Sea of Galilee and they show up and they have to pay taxes. And right there, for whatever reason, at that moment, Jesus looks at the tax collector, who, by the way, is worse than a sinner in their mind. And he looks at the tax collector and he says, hey, Matthew, let's go to your house for dinner. Of which all the disciples in that moment, probably not audibly, would have went, no. <laughs> and then Jesus said what was worse Hey, invite your friends. You know who's friends with tax collectors and sinners? More tax collectors and sinners, right? He says, no, invite your friends. Invite them. And then he not only goes and entertains this, but he offers Matthew the opportunity. Hey, Matthew, come and follow me. Come and be one of my closest 
friends and one of my closest disciples. That's the kind of grace that Jesus would, would live out to show this restoration that can happen between us and God. He would teach his parables and he would teach about heaven and he would teach about money and he would teach about how to do things. And then every once in a while, he'd throw in a parable and he'd throw in a teaching and all of a sudden it would be like, hey, there's a dad with two sons and one of the sons completely rejects and spits on the father and all that he stands for and takes his money and runs and spends it and just, you know, spends it and uses it up and, and, and defames the family and just all sorts of things in terms of their context of what that child did and what it meant. And then when he was spent and done and finished, he turns around to come home to the father, of which then the prodigal father wraps his arms around the child and immediately restores him to the same place of the son who never left. And everybody listening in that moment would have been like, no. Not that he put him on a path to earn that, but that he restored him immediately. And this was supposed to be a picture of God with us. And then, you know, later on, he, he's in the temple courts and, you know, the, the Pharisees have been wanting to trick Jesus and try to get him to say something wrong and pin him up against the wall and, and show him as a fraud to everyone there. So the crowd is there and they wait for the perfect moment and they drag this woman in who is guilty of adultery. And they drag her in and they use Jesus and this woman and the law to try to create this tension. Jesus, tell us, if you're such a rabbi, if you're the teacher, the law says we should stone her and kill her for this sin. And they all pick up stones. And Jesus, who is all truth, addresses them by the truth, by the law, and challenges them using the truth that with those without sin can go ahead and cast the first stone. And slowly but surely, they all drop their stones. And Jesus, being all truth, tells the woman, go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. But Jesus was all grace. And in the same moment, when all the screaming and all the shouting and all the condemnation that she received from everybody else and there was no one left but Jesus, Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. And this is the grace. This is this unmerited, unearned grace, unearnable grace that we have received because Jesus came. Just like John said, this is the fullness of grace and truth that we testified because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we all get to experience it. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4. He says, to each one of us, Right? Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. What does that mean? Well, he gives us what we specifically need. See, our sin and our brokenness, it, it shows up differently. It's not that we don't all need the grace of God in sort of this blanket general thing, but your struggles and your brokenness and my struggles and my brokenness express themselves differently. And I need the grace that's for me. I need for my struggles and my brokenness in terms of my relationship with God, I need the grace that speaks to my issues. And you need the grace that speaks to yours. And not any different than the relationships in your life, to the people around you, 
that you have the opportunity to express grace to, do they need something that's very specific from you? Not sort of a general, oh, that's okay. No general, no, we're not going to worry about that. No general blanket coverings of, let's just not bring it up again. No, they need grace that speaks directly to the brokenness that you're experiencing in your relationship. Because that's the grace that we've been given, portioned to us. So why does it matter? Well, it matters in this season, this Christmas season, because, again, as it shines a spotlight on all those cracks and all those fractures and all the brokenness of your relationships with others, we need to remember what God did to restore our relationship with him. But we can't give what we haven't received, right? We can't give what we haven't received. Now, I'll just share very quickly with you. Um, we, uh, kind of as a tradition, I've probably shared this before, but in our home, um, you know, just as part of our Christmas, you know, uh, traditions, if you will, as a family, um, we started showing the, the movie, The Nativity. How many of you know what the movie is, The Nativity? It's a really great picture, cinematic picture, um, that I really, we've really just loved. We've tried the Bible series and some other things. And as soon as our kids were a little bit older, we had to skip some parts early on when they were younger, but, you know, it's fine. Um, we, you know, we break it up in a couple nights, and we walk our kids and let them watch this thing. And I'll be honest, the story is fantastic, and it's a great telling, and they have a lot of artistic, um, what's it called, liberty, right? They take a lot of artistic liberty with the story. But let me tell you, one of the reasons I actually love the movie, one of the reasons I actually love the movie has nothing to do with the birth of our Savior. It has everything to do with, because of the way in which they tell the story, it has this beautiful story of the grace that is shown between Mary and Joseph. And it's a great story. And even as I watch it, even as I watch that, and we're looking forward to watching it again, I, I know that for me, not only does it remind me of this incredible narrative, this incredible story of a real thing that happened in a real place and time and with a real Savior, with real hope for me, is that I get to watch this narrative, this storytelling, if you will, of a young couple who in their season, in their life, needed to extend grace to one another that they didn't have in them to give. And you watch the story unfold, and you watch the grace shared in this relationship, and it's beautiful. It's one of the reasons I love that movie, because that's what he wants for us. He doesn't want just, this, this grace that was given you isn't just for you. It's for you to then give to others. Not a balance of, but the fullness of by the power of the Spirit of God in you. To be able to extend that, to be able to receive it first, because you can't give what you haven't received, but to be able to receive it. And then when you meet with your in-laws this week, and you go to your party with your boss this week, and you see that friend or that sibling that you're estranged with this week, that you have an opportunity not to grit your teeth and bear it and try to make it through. Not to just worry about the Christian facade that's there. But to actually extend the grace that they need. To speak to the brokenness that exists. That's what's needed. And that's what you and I have the opportunity 
to do. When we remember through this Christmas season, when we remember what he did for us. Now, I saw this picture on Facebook a couple weeks ago, and, and, I, and I grabbed it, I grabbed the clip of it, and, and I did that because initially I was really angry. I was really upset when I saw this picture. And I'll tell you why in a minute, because I just preached a sermon on grace, so I have to give grace, okay? So I was really angry. Let me show you what I saw. This was shared on Facebook, uh, like I said, a couple weeks ago. And by the way, if you're the one who shared it, I'm really sorry, okay? Don't, don't even bother telling me. Okay, you, you shared this on Facebook. This was being shared around. And I'll read it for you in case you can't read it on the screen. It's a, you know, it's a kind of an artistic rendering of the nativity. It says, hey, the nativity is a picture of how far we should be willing to go to find him. And when I first saw it, I got really, really angry. Now, I just preached on grace, so let me give a sliver of grace, Okay. In a very, very, very small angle at which you squint, this statement could be true in the context of, you know, the, the, talking about the story in terms of the shepherds coming and the wise men seeking and coming. I understand eh, kind of, sort of, maybe, possibly, right? Outside of that, it's a horrible statement with really bad theology, okay? So please don't share this on your Facebook wall. The picture of the nativity has nothing to do with how far we are willing to go to find him. The picture of the nativity tells us how far God was willing to go to restore his relationship with us. That's what the nativity means. That's what it's supposed to represent. That God came to be with us. Matthew said it this way. Matthew said it this way in his account, which we'll read more next week, but in 123 he says, look, he was quoting the, the, the Old Testament um, prophecy. He said, look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that God with us was the picture of grace and truth. That it wasn't something done from afar. It wasn't something done from a you know, king on a throne with distance in between. It was him sending his son into the disordered chaos of humanity to do for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. And not just to die, because again, he could have died as a child, but to live and to live a life full of grace and truth, to show us that by the power of his spirit in us, that's the same thing that we can do for others. To live in the fullness of truth and the fullness of grace. I talked to some folks after the service this morning and they were just sharing with me some of the difficult stuff they've got coming up this week with family coming into town and how hard some things are gonna be. And I basically said, oh, it doesn't take away the fact that it's hard, right? This doesn't remove the struggle, but it's an opportunity for God to do in you and through you what you simply cannot do. But you've got to receive the grace first. You have got to be able to fully embrace the grace that's been given to you. So when you read Luke 2 and you read John 1 and you, and you think about the fullness of what the birth of Jesus means for you and what he did for your brokenness and the grace that he poured out for you, Only then is there even a chance for you to have the opportunity presented and then be able to extend that grace to someone else. And I don't know your specific situation. 
I don't know what you're going to deal with this week, but I'm promising you if you pray for the opportunity to, to, to be able to extend that kind of grace to someone that you're, you know, you've got struggles with, there's tension with, there's, there's brokenness with, he'll give you the opportunity. And then it's up to you, by the surrendering of the Spirit in you, to have an opportunity to extend the fullness of that grace to them. That's my prayer for you and for me as we walk into this season. Let's pray together. God, thank you for those words, Emmanuel, that even in the the prophecy that your name would represent, the phrase, the title of who you were going to be would represent exactly what we needed, which is God with us. Thank you for the way John and sort of his reflection of your, of, of just living with life with you and doing life with you, that he was able to pen those words by your spirit that, that you really were the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth, the fullness of grace that restores our relationship with you and the fullness of truth that gives us life. God, I, I do pray that for everyone here and for everyone watching this later, that as we move into this season, the season of relationships, that you would, that you would give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be able to live out and express the fullness of grace that we have received from you. God, I know that there's, I know the brokenness and the relationship struggles that exist and I know the, the, the degree that they can exist for people that are sitting here. God, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts, that you would do a work in them, that this season would not be a season that they just try to get past and get through, but God, you, you would do a work by the power of your spirit in and through them. That as we share hope with others and we serve them in love, God, that we would be the picture of the fullness of grace because of you and because of this amazing Christmas story that we embrace and celebrate this week. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.